So my father, uh, in 1972, took a trip to Denmark and was on that trip in order to find out something about his own family that came from that area. And he knew the town where his grandparents had come from, but he wasn't really sure in those days before the internet or anything how to get around or where to find things. So he just decided to show up in the town and ask directions as to where the church is because that's where the family records would be stored. Uh, but he had no clue as to where to go in that regard. So he walked out from the train station and he saw a couple on the sidewalk and he went up to them and said, you know, I, I need some help and some directions. Do you happen to know where this church is located? And uh, they said, yes, we're familiar with it. And not only that, well, we're kind of interested in uh, following through on what you're uh, exploring too. So do you mind if we just drive you to that church and, and come along with you? and be an interpreter for you also. So he agreed, and so they drove him to the church. And there my father was able to find the records of baptism and confirmation, and he was also able to find some uh, death records there. And he kept coming up with this name, Grossland, that was tied to the Christensen family name. So that was a <coughs> and this couple that were with him were kind of going through these records along with him, helping him translate. And they said, you know, Grousland, you know, we know a family by the name of Grousland, and I think that this uh, wife there, she is interested in family history. Maybe she could tell you a little bit more about, uh, about that family. And so they drove him over to this woman's house, and sure enough, she was kind of like a family genealogist and had kept family records. And so uh, through discussion, um, my dad was telling her about uh, his family and that, and so she goes, well, I wonder if you'd be interested in seeing this. And she went over to a cupboard and she pulled out this family tree and laid it out before him. And he said, wow, this is something I've never seen before. And, uh, and so she kind of explained, well, these are the grouselands and that, and these are the generations that have come from the grouselands. And so he kind of traced this a little bit and he goes, oh, that's interesting. Well, well, here, here's the name of Christensen right here on the family. And then he went down further and he said, okay, Christensen. And then here's, uh, well, there's the name of my grandfather. And not only the name of my grandfather, but there's my father's name on the tree. And then he goes further down past his father's name and goes, and there's my name. And there's my siblings' names. And not only that, there's the names of all my children. So through this happenstance of connections, he came across someone who was able to provide him a family tree that traced his heritage back to a connection of this family in Grouselands. Up to this point, we have been kind of tracing a story of our own through, the, through uh, Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. And we have read what their situation has been. We have seen that Naomi and Ruth came back from the land of Moab as widows, as people in need, that they uh, established themselves back in, in uh, Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem that Ruth went out and volunteered to go glean in the fields, and that happened to be the fields of a man named Boaz, who was an honorable and worthy man. And he took notice of Ruth. And he had heard about her story and knew that she was an honorable woman herself and she had a good reputation. So he decided, on, on, uh, on, he decided to help supply her with the necessities of grain and that. And not only that, went over more than that allowed her to glean from the first pickings of, of the harvest. 
and allowed and didn't allow any of his workers to touch her or interfere with her. And then the story continues with Naomi hearing about this and saying, oh, Boaz, Boaz, now he's one of our relatives. And you know what? He's probably someone who might be able to help us. So she she comes up with a plan and instructions for Ruth to follow through and saying, look, we need to make an appeal. Here is a man who was a close relative. And according to the customs of Israel in those days, this is someone who as a redeemer, he might be able to assist us and and provide the... the, um, the uh, needs that we have for ourselves. And so, as we had seen last week, uh, Ruth went to the threshing floor where Boaz was uh, finally finding rest, and she makes an appeal to him and says, cover me with your wings, for you are a close relative. And in a sense, she was saying, would you please take me as your wife? Will you come alongside myself and Naomi? and be the redeemer that we need in this instance. And Boaz made a promise to her at that time and said, yes, I will be able to help you out in that, but there's a closer relative that is is, uh, nearer to you than I am. And I need to take care of a legal matter, a transaction, in order for me to be able to see if this man who's a nearer relative is going to take the role of redeemer or if I'm going to be able to do that on your behalf. So, when I look at a genealogy like this, the questions I often ask myself are, what were these people like? What did they do? You know, I, and look at the thousands of names or hundreds of names that are on here. You know, I can't know the, possibly know the whole story about, about these people. But the way that I have gone about trying to find out who these people are and what they did is to, first of all, see if there's anybody alive who still knows their stories, who can tell me firsthand directly what they are about to tell me um, if there's, there's first-hand accounts, whether or not there's like letters or written accounts of their lives. So what's going on in the book of Ruth is kind of like the author is presenting us or has presented us with the story of these particular people. And as Bob has mentioned last week, is that they're ordinary people. They're people who are not really remarkable in their ways. But as we've seen through the, through the course of the story so far, they are following the customs of what they're... What the, what they were used to in those days. And this idea of redemption keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. So this author is not only telling us a bit about who these people are and what they did, but now in this last chapter, he's also going to introduce witnesses that are going to explicitly state their understanding of what they see in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. They are going to give an account of, as they have lived with these people, This is what we understand of what's going on and what's happening. And in doing so, the author is kind of placing this story within a greater history. He wasn't contemporary to uh, whoever wrote this. He didn't live at the time of Ruth and Boaz and that. But he wants to take this story and he wants to place it in a greater context. He wants us to understand a greater picture of what this story is about and the ramifications of what these people did. And he's going to do that through the use of providing us with some eyewitness accounts later on in this chapter, which we'll see. But first of all, we need to follow through. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, one of the first times that I spoke, it was outdoors and it was a windy day. And 
uh, this kind of happened also. So this is not unfamiliar for me to happen with this. So. <laughs> But first of all, we have to take care of reading the rest of the story about following up on what Boaz promised to do for Naomi and Ruth. And we read that in the first 14 verses of chapter 4. And this is kind of set up as not unlike a court scene. Uh, this is kind of like how they conducted legal matters back in those days. And as we read, uh, Boaz goes to the city gate that's where transactions were usually done. You know, there's buying and selling there, but there was also matters of he could hold court there, so to speak, and bring together those people who were necessary to make this uh, legal matters taken care of. And so he goes to the gate. He sits down, let's see here. Now Boaz got up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now this is going to be kind of reading like a, uh, you know, like a, an account of how the, the recorder, like a court recorder, has going on in, in terms of they did this, they did this, they did this. And this is how the, the matter was solved. So it is a little dry. It's a little kind of, you know, <coughs> unremarkable for the most part. But what he does, though, is, is that in order for this to be a legal transaction, he has to bring together witnesses. So he calls together these elders to sit down and, and bear witness to what this exchange is with this nearer relative. Now, we had gotten a clue at the end of chapter 3 that um, when Ruth had returned to Naomi and said that this is what Boaz was promising to do, well, Naomi was going, okay, well, just hang on because he's not going to be settled until he takes care of this today. So we have a clue here that Boaz is kind of anxious to get this done. And he's kind of motivated to work and to get, in, to get this uh, deal transacted. Um, so he's, he's working towards trying to get this close relative to say yes or no, but at the same time, he's hoping that it will be in Boaz's favor, his own favor to do that. So he kind of uses a little trickery. Now, I shouldn't say trickery, but he kind of, kind of works the system a little bit. So he introduces the idea of, well, first of all, we know that you're a close relative, and Naomi is going to have to sell this land, and I'm telling you, as since you're a near relative, here's the land that she is, is, is um, meaning to have purchased. Are you wanting to buy it? Or, you know, if you do, if you don't, good, fine, I'll, I'll take it. So he just gives that bit of information, nothing more. And the, and the closer kinsman says, well, of course, I'll buy it. That sounds good, like a good deal. But then Boaz drops the other part of the, of the deal, and he says, well, okay, so if you are going to buy the land along with that, you're going to have to accept Moab, uh, Ruth, the Moabite woman, as your wife, in order to carry on the inheritance, in order to, to raise up the name again of, of the... Uh, of uh, the deceased person. Well, that kind of changes his uh, other closer redeemer's mind, and he says, "Oh, well, that's going to spoil my inheritance. No, I can't do it. So, so I'm going to turn that transact. I'm going to turn that over to you. You can buy the land. You can have Ruth as your wife." And it's an interesting little point that they bring here that, in order to seal the deal, they exchange a sandal. 
Now, I've looked and tried to find out what is this that, what this means. It really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, there's some uh, commentators who say this is kind of like uh, a representation that the sandal is what you walk on, you know, walk on the ground. And so wherever you walk, in terms of your possession, that is what you own. So it's in a way saying, okay, I, I have this right of possession of the land that I walk on, but I am going to turn that right over to, to you. Um, but even the writer of the story says, now back in that day, as a custom was back then, so already this custom in the writer's day was already obsolete. So there's, um, it was just a, a quirk, quirky way that they made their, sealed their deals. So, um, so Boaz is able to have the results that he, that he wants. And he says uh, to those who are standing there, and by this time the crowd has gotten bigger, and he says, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Mahlan. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So we haven't really read the verses that kind of relate to what is the actual law behind these, uh, this idea of redemption. But to touch on that briefly, two verses that I'll just mention. One is found in Leviticus. And there in, in chapter 25, um, the, these are laws that were set down in God's, in, uh, uh, they were set down as God's law for the people of Israel. And there was an understanding that because when they enter into the land of Israel, the promised land, that God did not want this land to be lost to other people, to be out of Israel's uh, possession. He wanted the land to remain within the family lines that were claiming the land and living on the land. So that is one of the ideas about this land that shall, shall not be sold outside of the peoples of Israel's inheritance. And it says in Leviticus, this land shall not be sold in perpetuate, perpetuate this land shall not be sold outside, for the land is mine. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So in a way, it's kind of like, this land, really, I'm giving it to you. This land is mine, says the Lord. And so since it's, I'm giving it to you, don't lose it. Don't let this land um, go out from your hand. And so your family member, it's a responsibility within the family for that land to remain within the family hands. And then the idea of, of perpetuating the name of, uh, uh, of uh, the person in Israel so that if someone dies and they have not had, well, I'll read this to you in Deuteronomy. Uh, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and, and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So not only was land important, but the name of the family line was also important. This was a customary thing that the Lord had, had set up uh, as a rule. It seemed like in some ways at the time that Ruth was uh, written, it kind of became optional because the closest relative was able to opt out of saying, well, I'm not going to buy the land. At that point, he didn't know that Ruth came along with it, but it seemed like because you can negotiate some of this. But as we saw, Boaz was very motivated 
to have the opportunity to be a redeemer for both Ruth and Naomi. So what did other people think about this transaction? I'm sorry I have to keep taking these on and off because this falls up. May I take this off? Yes. May I take this off, please? Thank you. That way that will help me keep my glasses on. <laughs> Thank you, and that would be one last thing that I have to worry about. Thank you. Um, so uh, the transaction is done. The deal is done. Boaz has said, okay, I have now performed the act of the Redeemer. I have obtained the land. I'm buying that from Naomi. I'm setting, I'm setting that straight. And now I'm also going to take Ruth as my wife and perpetuate the name of her dead husband and also the name of Naomi's family line because when Naomi came back, it was her husband and sons that had, that had passed away. And he calls for them to be witnesses to this. So now we are going to read verses that talk about the voices of witnesses that are describing and giving an account of their idea of what um, has happened and also giving them uh, words about the character. They will not only speak words of blessing, but they will also speak about the character of uh, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and talk about what uh, results will come from that. Um, so let's continue in verses in verse 11. After Boaz says, you are witnesses, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make a woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The blessings that they talk about with Boaz talk about the houses. They talk about the house of Israel. They talk about Boaz's house, the house of Perez. They are expanding the idea of what Boaz has done. It's not just a benefit for, for him, but they are linking it to past generations and past uh, ancestors that have gone before um, his blessing for them at that time is, uh, may you be renowned in Ephrathah and in Bethlehem. So they're praying that his name and his reputation will be expanded even greater to not only just their town, but to the area that surrounds them. He had already been known as an honorable man, but they want their uh, pronouncing a blessing that, that your uh, acts and, and what you have done and what you have shown will give you greater uh, renown and greater worth. And they say that, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now this is an interesting, curious um, part of what they describe, because Tamar and the story of Tamar and Judah is not really a happy story. It's, uh, Judah is one of the sons of Israel. One of the tribes of Israel came from Judah, the 12 tribes. Judah is one of the tribes. But the story of Tamar and Judah, Judah kind of parallel a little bit of what's going on in this story here. Tamar was uh, the wife of one of Judah's sons, and he passed away. So she was in a position not unlike Ruth and Naomi, where she's left as a widow without any support. And Judah, being her father-in-law, said, okay, well, I have two other sons, and they can perform the right of redemption for, for you. But one of the sons was so evil in the eyes of the Lord that the Lord took his life. And then the second son who came up after him 
Well, he was reluctant to perform that duty. And also because of his evil acts, the Lord took his life. So two people in a row were not able to fulfill that, that role. And so Judah said, well, I've got this younger boy. If you can wait, you know, we're gonna, we'll, we'll just wait for you to, him to grow up and, and he can do that. Well, she, she took matters in her own hand. And through kind of a long story short, through kind of deceptive practices, she seduced Judah, her father-in-law, and bore a son through him. And so this is the name of a, of a child who was born to Tamar and Judah, was Perez. And this is Boaz's offspring. Now why these people were bringing this story into play is kind of curious. Like I said, maybe it's a result of like, well, because things were all so messed up back then, Boaz, you got it right. This is the way that you're supposed to be done. You're willing, you were able to do it, you went in and fulfilled this role. For, uh, on behalf of Ruth and on behalf of, of Naomi. And you have to suspect also that um, what the motivation for what uh, Boaz did was not simply out of obligation, not simply out of trying to follow the law, although he was obeying that, but there was an aspect of love that was probably a part of his motivation also. That he saw the character of who Ruth was, had heard about her, knew her standing. He was humbled by the fact that she would be the one who would say to him and appeal to him, may you be our redeemer on our behalf. And so this act of redemption that Boaz conducted was seen as also an act of love. And that was mixed in as, as part of it also. But, his out, but the results of, act of Boaz's action also had an impact on Naomi and Ruth. And we have the witnesses also who describe that. As a result of what Boaz has done, these are also the people who are benefiting from this. And so let's read back again verse 11 where it says, We are witnesses, may the Lord make this woman, and they are speaking about Ruth, who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now what's interesting about this is, is, is that Ruth is an outsider. So if you were to look at the whole history of Israel and the families that were produced within the history of Israel, she wouldn't even be in this circle. She wouldn't even, she's, she's not a part of this at all. And yet these people are speaking of her <coughs> as someone who would not, that their hope is, is that she would be like Rachel and Leah. And Rachel and Leah are prominent matriarchs in the history of Israel. It's like putting a foreigner on the level of the, of the top people who are um, the wives, the mothers of the, of the tribes of Israel. It's quite, a, it's quite a statement to make that she is equated within that. She is drawn into the history of Israel. She is drawn into that direct line and saying, no, you're not outside anymore. You're now part of our family. Um, if we... Um, Read in verses 13. Let's read verses 13 and 15 to talk a little bit more about what Ruth is described as. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So not only because of what Boaz did, did he was did it result in Ruth becoming a wife again? She was able to bear a son. 
there's kind of an idea here in verse 13 that the Lord gave her conception. Possibly she, in her first marriage, was not able to bear children. There was something that probably had happened that she was just not able to conceive. And yet, in this relationship, the Lord blessed her by saying, allowing her to be, uh, become a mother and give, and give birth. So she gains a husband, she gains a son. And the, and the women who speak of her then say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to her. They are speaking of, of uh, what they know about Ruth and also. This is another indication of the honor that, and uh, um, the way that they have perceived the commitment that Ruth made to Naomi from the very beginning. When in chapter one she said, I will, with Naomi, I will go where you go, I will live where you live, your God will be my God, where you die, I will die. And, and the sustained commitment that Ruth had throughout, that, throughout this story. And also the fact that um, because of that, she was doing that because she loved her mother-in-law. There was a strong love element also within that relationship. So Ruth has been drawn into the line of uh, family of Israel through Boaz's marriage to her. Um, she has been able to give a son and also has been able to, um, and also then also in terms of reputation, the love that uh, she has shown for Naomi is obvious. And then we come to Naomi. Because of what Boaz has done, uh, Naomi also is blessed, and Naomi has also uh, benefited from the results of what Boaz has, has done. Uh, so let's reread those verses again from 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So it's interesting that the witnesses that are, are, are speaking in these verses are the neighborhood women. And I kind of like to think that these are the same group of women who in chapter 1 witnessed the return of Naomi and saw her coming back to Bethlehem and asked the question, is this Naomi? And Naomi said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is bitterness. And we saw from, or heard from uh, Mitch's first uh, message on that, that Naomi returned empty. She had, lost, uh, she had lost her husband, she had lost her sons. There was nothing that she had that she was bringing back to Bethlehem. And so her declaration to these, to these women is, is that, don't call me blessed. The Lord has done this in my life and I'm coming back empty. Well, now these women have witnessed or are witnessing a reversal of that. Because of what Boaz has done now, there is now a child that has been born through Ruth. And um, the women are calling this child her redeemer. Yes, Boaz has been a, re a redeemer in a legal sense and also in a family sense, in a loving sense. But now it's interesting that these women are calling this child Naomi's redeemer. So they're looking to the future that this child will have in order to provide for Naomi in her old age, that, she, that uh, he will be a restorer of her life and a nourisher in her old age so that her life now will become full and have more of a fullness to it and have a, have a richer com 
uh, content to that. Um, so that, that person who was empty has now become full. And in verse 16 when we read, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Uh, this is also something that is kind of an evidence of how Ruth expressed her love to her mother-in-law. Yes, Boaz and Ruth are the physical parents of this child, but Ruth has also now given Naomi an opportunity to be an integral part of this child's upbringing. She will share in this, in this child's life in instruction and in, and in guidance throughout her life now as, as it remains. And in verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. So it's not unlike this, this uh, uh, opportunity that Ruth gave to uh, Naomi. It's not unlike her obtaining her own son and that deepened relationship that, that can exist now through the rest of her life. So as a result of what Boaz has done, three people are blessed. He has, he himself has been, uh, uh, as he took a loving action in redemption, he himself now is rewarded and blessed that his stature will grow in greatness. He will now have a line of, uh, of uh, children to follow after him. Uh, Ruth and Naomi have been restored to a place of safety and protection. Uh, they are no longer in need, and Boaz has lovingly provided them with uh, their and uh, with that uh, those uh, opportunities, those strengths, and um, and there is also now a child that has been born to Ruth and Boaz that uh, will uh, directly um, affect Naomi's life and help her in her old age. So the witnesses. Witnesses of redeeming love. In this, in this uh, case, we uh, have heard the, the witnesses declare, um, in a way, the redeeming love that Boaz, Boaz has done has brought about these results. And also, in a sense, the child uh, himself is also described as a redeemer and a sustainer in Naomi, Naomi's future. But there's a greater purpose to this story than simply, wow, what was, what was bad has now come out to be good. Um, what was lost has now been redeemed. The author of the book ends this, ends this book in, a, in a, an interesting way. And if you look at verses 17 and 18 through 21, how this book concludes is they named... They named the child Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So what's the big deal about this? Why do we need to know this information after the fact of this story? Well, it's kind of like what I mentioned at the beginning. When you investigate your family history, you want to know what these people are like and what they've done and who they are. And it's kind of like this story. We don't know exactly where it came from or where the author got it. Maybe this is a story that had been handed down through the generations of 
these families, that they're highlighting this, uh, these three people. They represent something. They're symbolic of something. And that is the case. Boaz's, Boaz's uh, actions echo that of the God of Israel. God of Israel spoken of as Israel's redeemer. And so what Boaz has done mirrors the action that God has done for his people, Israel, on a greater level. It's taking the small story and simple story of these ordinary people and the lives that they lived at that particular time and then saying, look at what happened here and the benefit and the results of it. Let's equate it now to the greater story of how God has worked in the nation of Israel as a whole. It's like selectively taking out you know, two or three people from this massive story of Israel and all the people that are involved and saying, this little tiny portion here, it can speak about what God has done in a greater purposes for all of us as a nation of Israel. And so to, to read through these uh, generations that are listed at the end, the end point at this point is, is David. So it's kind of seized, uh, seen to be that this book was written at the time that David was king, or shortly afterwards. And saying, kind of let's follow a line here now from Boaz, and as a result of his taking Ruth, well, they had a child, and now this child, and child, child, all the way to David. And look at the benefit that David has been to our nation. He has risen up as a great king. It's a high point in Israel's history that we are blessed through the rule of David as a result of this. And we can point back to this and say, hey, this, as a result of these simple people, we now end up with someone like David. But it's not absent. What, what isn't, or what should not be overlooked, is, is that it's tracing the work of the Lord's hand through all of this. That's who is supposed to be getting the credit. Instead of just, well, these people did the right thing, it's also, well, God was also actively at work behind the scenes, not only in the story of Ruth, but also behind the scenes of the story of Israel. And we read that in our, one of our verses before in Deuteronomy. And God is doing that because of his redeeming love for his people Israel. If I, if I read it again, it was not because... He talks about in those verses that we read in Deuteronomy that God chose his people not because they were the greatest thing on earth, but because they were a small nation. And he set his love on those people because he set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. So Israel constantly needed to be reminded and was constantly reminded about the greater purposes of God's redemptive acts in their history and for the nation on their behalf. And he does it because of his love for the people. That is the motivation. So, so this book of Ruth is a witness to the readers also at the time of the author, a witness to them that says, look, God is still redeeming and purposing and following through on the commitment and the oath that he swore to our fathers all the way back then. It's continuing on through all the lines of the people who, are, who have come after and who have gone before. So what does this story have to do with us now? Because whereas the book of Ruth ends at David, 
we in our day know that the story didn't end there. And in the book of Matthew, which I won't read, but the book of Matthew, though, then, generations after Ruth had, had uh, been written, generations after the reign of David, there's another genealogy that was written. And that genealogy had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And all the people that were listed in Ruth are included in that genealogy, all the way up to Joseph and Mary. And it says that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we know, that the, we know the role of why and reason why Jesus came to be our Redeemer. Another evidence of the faithful work of God's redeeming hand, not only for, uh, not only for the people of Israel, but now that has been expanded beyond even Israel to those people who are outside of this circle, not unlike how Ruth was, that we are now included in this redemptive act that God has purposed and arranged for us. And that comes from uh, the second verses that we read, and also that Bob had mentioned last week, that um, God's faithfulness, his loving kindness now has extended and appeared to all people. So where do we see, or how do we witness our redeeming love today? We can read about the stories of Ruth and say, wow, there's a picture of great redeeming love, that this initiative that Boaz took is a benefit. We can look at the sacrifice that Christ has done on our behalf, the redeeming love that that was motivated by in order to save us out of lawlessness and our sins. The redemption assumes that there is a release from an undesirable condition. Naomi and Ruth were released from their undesirable condition of, of uh, need. Uh, the people of Israel were released from the undesirable condition of slavery. And the verses that we read in Titus talk about how the redemption that Christ has provided releases us and redeems us from the lawlessness and sin. So we can easily read these stories and say that's the evidence of redeeming love. But how does it speak to us today personally? How do we also determine what's redeeming love? Well, some of what I think uh, Bob and I were kind of paralleling in our thoughts a bit about uh, these verses in Titus and uh, the way the outworking of God's redeeming love should be worked out in our lives. Because in both of the verses of Deuteronomy and also in, in, uh, uh, in here, there's the idea of obedience. And in our simple everyday activities, it's through our obedience to God's uh, laws, God's commands, that the redeeming that we become the witnesses of God's redeeming love. It's not that we are only speaking about it, but we are living it out. In, in Titus, it, um, it, it, it's um, let me let me read those verses in Titus again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So this is, this, is our, this, is our, um, this is our mandate, so to speak, that as we have understood that God has redeemed us from this lawlessness, um, our obligation then is to be obedient and to be loving God. This is the way that our love for what God has done for us is expressed, that we are following after his commandments 
and that we are living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And that just simply occurs in the matter-of-fact decisions that we make, choices between right and wrong, which way we go in terms of how we treat people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, just in those sim simple interactions, the strength of God's redeeming love can work through us as long as we are, are um, obedient to what he says. So then we are bear witnesses to that, and then other people can bear witness to that and hopefully see that uh, we are living our lives because of what Christ has done in our lives. Our obedience is our witness to others of God's redeeming love. Boaz wasn't looking for glory. Boaz was, and Boaz wasn't probably cognizant of all the greater things that were going to happen after him. He was just simply saying, here's these laws that have been written in God. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to do that. And as a result of that, um, there was blessings that came after that. This, uh, these verses in Titus also encourage us to be zealous for good works. So what should energize us is not obligation or duty. It is hopefully being derived out of a heart condition of love that we have for other people and a heart condition that, that we have for God. That God's love and God's uh, purposes will be seen in our lives. And that we may never know how or what effect our lives will have on generations to come. You know, I, I don't know, I, there's no way that I'm going to be able to know the stories of all these people that are on this chart. And there's no way that I'm going to be, know, be able to know exactly what's going on. But where my trust and my faith and my hope is, is, is that, and knowledge is, is, is that God is still working behind the scenes for his purposes. Will I allow myself to be part of that redemptive work in other people's lives and in, and in my life? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to be thankful for, and we thank you for this story that has been brought to us of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We thank you for the character uh, that they have displayed, for the obedience that they uh, followed through with. Lord, may we, uh, in, in our lives, purpose to follow you more closely. May we be uh, more high, highly aware of the redemptive love that you have given to us, but that we need to pass along to other people. So may we act as your servants in that regard. <coughs> Pray these things in Jesus' name.